Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash marathon. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Pat McFadden. And I cannot believe it's taken me eight years to get Pat on the show. He's one of those people I'm always like, I need to get Pat McFadden on. And then I'm just so embarrassed that it's taken me this long to approach him. But my word, is it worth the treat? Pat has a wealth of political experience, having worked for Donald Dewitt, John Smith and Tony Blair, as well as having his own parliamentary government and now shadow cabinet career. We talk about a whole deal of a lot. Before that, don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, particularly if you have a story about meeting a politician in a strange or unusual place. Leon has been in touch. He says, my experience meeting a politician in a strange place was Nigel Farage. Being a bit of a history buff, my father and I went to one of those guided tours of the Waterloo battlefield, where it was the 200th anniversary of the event. I mean, if you'd have just said... We went to Waterloo on the 200th anniversary. What politician do you think I bumped into? I think Nigel Farage would be so... I think it might even be a list of one. Anyway, he says, it was a huge show with reenactors doing cooking, horse riding, marching, formations, etc. While nosing around a unit of cannon, we came across Nigel Farage talking to a couple of the reenactors. He had at least one very big minder, who I guess would have been necessary while celebrating a British and Allied victory against the French on European soil. Anyway, while my dad and I were chatting to him, Nigel was making sure that we knew he thought he would have himself given Boney a good run for his money at Waterloo. My word, of all the people to have bumped into at Waterloo on the 200th anniversary, Nigel Farage. Well, if you've encountered a politician in a strange or unusual place, or there was a theme that developed on the, on the last uh, episode, if you've just had a really mundane or boring experience of the politician, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can review the show. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Acast, wherever you listen to this. It's usually there's some sort of review function. And um, there's a kind of running joke of people using Alan Partridge um, quotes in the review a reviewer called kev keegan which if, if that is the i mean obviously there could be more than one kevin keegan but if it's the kevin keegan um thank you very much he says two words liquid podcasting so thank you very much um someone else by the way did uh, leave a very nice review i'm not going to read out all the compliments but he said i thought that if i gave matt five stars in a review he'd stop asking me to do so but it's well deserved obviously um I can't ask you all individually, so it's always a collective call to action, as they say. So if you have left a review, sorry for keep mentioning it, but if you haven't, you know, what are you waiting for? Um, anyway, today's guest is Pat McFadden. And as I said at the start, he's someone who should have been on the show years ago. But the benefit of waiting is that we get uh, those extra years of experience, particularly through the Corbyn years and his view of it. What strikes me throughout this whole conversation and what may well strike you as well, is how few Labour people you hear talk like this anymore. And uh, there are parallels between he and another Scottish Labour politician that we do talk about. Um, but you just don't 
hear that many Labour people talk like this. And for a while, this was people like Pat McFadden and, and his views were far more prominent in the Labour Party. And the sort of things they say were the norm for Labour politicians when they're in government. So this is, there's something, even though Pat is absolutely always focused on the future, there's something nostalgic about this because it reminds you that Labour used to have a mixture of voices and more prominent among them were voices like Pat McFadden's. And not just in terms, it turns out, of uh, the things that he says, but as well to hear uh, Scottish Labour people. I mean, I know that he's not uh, technically Scottish Labour, but he's Scottish and he's Labour. Um, this is just a dose of really clear political thinking. And it's only when you listen to someone like Pat McFadden, you realise how rare um, these, uh, these individuals are. So this is a treat from start to finish. I begin by asking Pat a slightly cheeky question. Pat, you are a, uh, a Labour MP, uh, a Blairite, you're from Glasgow, you're a Celtic fan. Two teams um, that have wonderful histories, um, <laughs> whose future is perhaps a little precarious. What do you think is more likely in the next five years? Celtic will win the Premier League again or Labour will win a general election? Well, I'm hoping Celtic win the Premier League within five years. Um, I'm hoping both can happen. Uh, and uh, nothing is one of my sort of life's lessons. I don't think anything's inevitable or fated. I think these are both of these institutions, their futures will be governed by the choices they make. They will. Obviously, Celtic, um, for a while, the chairman was John Reid after, after he'd um, finished serving as a cabinet minister and had left the Commons. Um, is that something you've ever considered doing? Oh, um, look, I've been a Celtic supporter all my life. Uh, my parents were Irish immigrants to, to Glasgow. Uh, my family are all Celtic supporters. Uh, it's just what I was brought up with. I've never had any formal involvement in the club. I'm just a, these days, I'm just a, an armchair uh, TV supporter based in England. Um, they're going through a tough time at the moment. Uh, have been for the last 18 months, but Hopefully Celtic will be back. As I say, if they if they make the right decisions, they'll they'll be back. People might be tempted to uh, draw uh, similarities between yourself and John Reid, two straight-talking Scottish Blairite uh, ministers of a similar sort of generation and time uh, who came through at a similar time. What is it about Scottish Labour politicians? You think that gives you a particular? Maybe you don't accept this uh, assumption of the question. But that great mix of directness um, and all the passion often associated with people perhaps away from the centre ground, but with that real political clarity. Well, I was always close to John Reid. I was a great admirer of John Reid and he's a good friend. Um, and yes, we are from similar backgrounds. Um, he's, he's from something of an Irish background too, I think. And I think part of what you're talking about is an immigrant story about families who've come to to this country, I mean, this country, the UK, to, to make a new start in life. And so uh, I don't know the detail of John's family background, but my own parents, you know, they left school very young. They came here with no, no, not much money, not much formal education, and they had to start with very little. And I think when you do that, you get a real passion and respect for education because that's the only way 
through which people are going to improve their circumstances. Um, you're not a huge fan of of that style of politics that says you'll take what you're given and you'll be happy with it. Uh, and maybe that gives you uh, a bit of a, I don't know, um, a, a desire to allow people to make their own decisions, if I could put it that way. Uh, and the great power of politics at its best is it can give people that power without them having money, without them having to buy their way out of situations. And we tried to do some of that when we were in government. And some of those policies, probably John Reid and I were uh, among the, the greatest fans of uh, during, our, during our time in government. So uh, I think it's, I don't know if it's something Scottish or it's something about the immigrant story, uh, but uh, I'm a big admirer of John's. And, you know, people might uh, associate Scottish politics, Glasgow politics with a particular radical tradition. Um, you're obviously around the centre ground. Are you, are you sort of shaped by that in any way? Is your politics a reaction to perhaps being surrounded by people more extreme than yourself? Oh, look, I mean, when I was growing up, of course, the story of Red Clyde's side and Labour history was, uh, was part of what you were brought up with politically. Um, and that history is really important uh, and it's got to be respected. And, and there were many, many courageous people in the early days of the Labour Party. But the big challenge, of course, is to change with the times. Uh, and if I look at the Conservative Party, it has been very adaptable. That's one of the things we always say about it. Um, and the Labour Party is probably in its culture a bit more nostalgic. Um, a bit more reverent now. Some of that's good, you know, to have a respect for your past and to what, you know, for what people did. But you've got to change with the times as well because society's always changing. We talk about this phrase these days: "the left behind." Sometimes I'm not sure whether it's people that have been left behind or the Labour Party that's been left behind in these debates because you have to adapt to how the world's changing uh, if you want to stay relevant in politics. And what about your Irishness then? It's obviously a big part of your identity, being the, the son of Irish immigrants. And I think particularly regards to the Scottish constitutional debate, because some people might say, well, if you're, if you're the son of uh, Irish immigrants, you know, you're more likely to be Celtic, which you are. You might then more likely to be sort of pro-independence. You see perhaps the British effect in Ireland for good and for bad, and you might then that might lead you towards more of a kind of yes position. That'd be a generational thing as well. But I often see the SNP talking about Ireland, and well, I, you know, Ireland can do well without the, you know being ruled by the British and all the rest of it. Um, but I wonder actually if your Irishness has had the opposite effect, that, that um, perhaps seeing uh, the effect of partitioning in Ireland has made you more likely to be um, pro-union. Uh, pro well, uh, you're right, it's an important part of my, my character and how I was brought up. Both my parents, as I said, were Irish immigrants. They were both Gaelic speakers, in fact. Uh, they spoke Gaelic before they spoke English. Uh, and they're both buried in, in Donegal. Um, so that is a you know that's a very important part of my uh, upbringing, my family's identity, and so on. We're also a British family, you know. We we've all got Scottish accents. My my mother and father, when they were going to get married, had a discussion about where to go. To be honest, staying in Ireland wasn't really an option. There was very very few opportunities there for a young couple, uh, and the question was, uh, do they come to Britain or do they go to America? Because some of my dad's 
brothers and sisters had gone to America. So we could have very easily grown up with Brooklyn accents. Uh, but they chose the UK partly because my mum wanted to be closer to home, somewhere easier to, uh, closer to her home, uh, easier to get back and forth. And we spent all our childhood holidays there. Um, now, to, to go to your question about the attitude to nationalism, um, this has changed over the years. My guess is most Celtic supporters did vote yes in the referendum in 2014. Uh, had that taken place, you know, 20 or 30 years earlier, I'm not sure that would have been the case, but I think it probably is the case now. So there's been some generational change there. I mean, my view, maybe we'll come on to this. I mean, I was involved in the creation of the Scottish Parliament. That was something that we wanted to do to, to create self-government in Scotland within the UK. Uh, but one of the lessons of that experience is once these institutions are created, you don't get to dictate what they're used for. You don't get to decide the boundaries of the debate. And that's something that has been learned since, uh, since the Scottish Parliament was created, which is now 20, 23, 24 years ago. When you were working for Donald Dewar at the time then, did you have any sense? Was anyone saying, oh, God, you know, I mean, I, I agree with having a Scottish Parliament, but uh, this could really enable the Scottish nationalists. Was that, was that war-gamed at all at the time? Yeah, people did say that. Um, and as I say, you couldn't, you can't dictate what happens. Uh, for the first 10 years of its existence, that didn't happen. Um, the idea was to, uh, to create a self-governing institution that would have pretty broad powers over health, education, legal system, local government, policing, and all the rest of it. Um, and uh, that would reflect the Scottish character, whatever happened at a Westminster election. So, if, you know, there are party political assumptions built into this. You know, if the Tories won again, Scotland would be insulated from that because it would have its own uh, self-government. What... Um, uh, what's happened, of course, in the last, in the first 10 years, that, that pretty much stayed as, as it was. But in the period since the SNP have running it, it's become something different. It's become a, a platform for keeping the constitutional question on the boil. And they've done that very successfully. Um, and to, to an extent, I give them credit for managing to keep that question on the boil for so long. Uh, and they've also pulled off the, the quite neat trick in politics of being in government and opposition at the same time. That's always quite a good a good trick to pull off if you can. And you can see it a little bit now with Brexit, where I could see a future where the UK managed to keep this grievance against the European Union going, to keep blaming it for things that go wrong and to absolve themselves of responsibility for certain governance failures. The SNP have done that quite successfully regarding England. And I think uh, a quite sort of nationalistic focused UK government, uh, I could quite easily see Boris Johnson doing that with the European Union in the years to come. Part of the reason the SNP have been so successful in framing themselves as government and opposition and keeping that constitutional question on the board has been really the collapse of Scottish Labour and the collapse of the Labour Party across the UK is the backdrop to all of these things, to Brexit, to the independence referendum and, and, and so on. Why has Labour struggled so much to 
provide an effective opposition or to be a government in waiting in Scotland? In Scotland? Yeah. I find that one harder to answer, to be honest. It was a, a precipitate collapse uh, after the 2014 referendum. Uh, you know, you had the, uh, the 2010 election where Scottish Labour did quite well. It got about 40 MPs, I think. Uh, really, some really good, talented young MPs among them. Um, and then you have the referendum where the no side, the, the pro-UK side wins and then seems to get a backlash after winning the referendum. And that's been the pattern since where the SNP have managed to soak up all the yes vote and the no vote, if you like, has been split two or three ways between the Conservative Party, uh, the, the Labour Party and the Lib Dems. Uh, and as long as that continues, th these elections since 2015 have all been pretty similar uh, in their outcomes. So the one thing I'd say about it is I think Anas Sarwar is a breath of fresh air. I'm really glad to see him there. We really needed that change. He is, uh, I think he's been great since he came in. He's said all the right things. Uh, he's under no illusions about the size of his task. And he gives me hope for the future of the Scottish Labour Party. I mean, to be honest, I'm, I don't claim to be in touch with this very closely. I've been in England now for over 30 years, so I'm not the best qualified to, to comment on it. But I do like what I see in an ass. And I, I think if I was in Scottish Labour now, his leadership and his presence would be giving me more hope than most things that have happened for the last 10 years there. He was really successful in those televised debates. And I think trying to sort of take any allegiance out of it, I think he won all of them, which is remarkable, really, because sometimes you win the first one and then your opponents adapt to what you're doing. But it felt like the Tories and the SNP were still talking about the Constitution and, and, and Ass was talking about COVID, which obviously made sense because we're going through a pandemic. But it didn't seem, obviously he didn't have much time, but it didn't really seem to register that people might watch and go, yeah, he's good, but they're not ready to vote Labour yet. So... Obviously, having a, a, a popular and talented and likeable leader is a big part of it. But there seems to be this whole other part, which is basically Scotland just isn't listening to the Labour Party. And that's true in England as well. That this isn't just about an ass, is that Scottish Labour can, is really only viable when Labour could conceivably win in Westminster as well. So with Keir Starmer and with Anasawa, who are you know, probably objectively improvements on Jeremy Corbyn and, and Richard Leonard, respectively. Why haven't we seen yet perhaps the progress that you might have expected, given those two big changes? Well, if you look at the picture nationally, um, relevance and listening are good ways to, to put it. Uh, look, I think we went on a, on a long wayward journey uh, in the last um, the last decade, the last five years in particular, um, where voters were, uh, especially working class voters in places like where I represent in the black country, um, were seeing us as less relevant. And I'll give you a, a number that illustrates this. In the last general election that Tony Blair fought as leader of the Labour Party, we won 12 seats for Labour in the black country. Uh, we've now got three Labour MPs there. Um, and that's after adopting 
ever more left-wing programmes uh, to put towards the people. So the pattern has been pretty clear as to how the voters in that area have, have seen us in the last decade. And if you go on a journey like that, it's going to take quite a lot to knock on the door and say, look, we know we went on that, you know, uh, that long journey where you've been rejecting us in greater and greater numbers for the last 10 years, but we're back now and, we, you know, we've got this new guy. It's going to take more than that. So I think, uh, you know, we can't underestimate the degree of change that we need to show the voters before we'll get a hearing. And that's only to get a hearing. Even if you can get a hearing, there's then a second question. What's your offer for the future? Is it appealing? Are they going to go for it? But before that, there's a job of convincing the voters that you've got the message that you need to change. Uh, and you have to do both of these tasks, I think, to put yourself back in a fighting, uh, fighting position. And you can't just, as I say, think that that's going to flip overnight. We've fallen a long, long way in that. Those seat numbers in the black country are as good an illustration of it as any. How important is it for that change to be a big visible moment, to be to be encapsulated like a clause four moment or like Kinnock? I know Kinnock didn't go on to win a general election, but his modernisation paved the way for, for John Smith and then Tony Blair to get into office. How important is it that the public actually sees a Labour leader basically have a row with their own party? It's essential that change is public. You can't do it by stealth. It's not so much about a row with your own party for the sake of it, but you have to. You can't change by stealth. You're right. Uh, Neil Kinnock in, engaged in a very uh, public uh, battle for change. We all remember his 1985 speech, and if, if those of us of a certain age, it's probably one of the most seminal political moments in our lives. Um, I worked for John Smith when he did the one member, one vote reforms uh, after he was elected. And that was, in my direct experience, probably the most stressful <laughs> change that uh, I've worked, worked on in the Labour Party. It was real touch and go. And we remember the John Prescott speech at the 1993 conference. Uh, and really until the last minute, it wasn't clear how that was how that was going to go, and then Tony Blair, of course, did Clause Four and lots of other policy changes too. So, when you're in opposition, you're not in control of very much. You can't uh, control the events of the day. Even the government of the day can't control the events of the day. It's difficult to dictate the political agenda. But what you can do is communicate to the public that you're serious about change. You're changing your own party. It doesn't always need to be a constitutional change. It could be a policy change. It could be a cultural change. But you've got to do it, and it can't be done by stealth. And in fact, uh, given that people's engagement with politics is usually quite tangential, you might have to do it more than once before they, before they take notice. So I think it's really important that change is public. And the degree of change necessary after five years of Corbynism and the Stop the War coalition running the Labour Party is probably even greater than the examples that we've just discussed. So what does Keir Starmer need to do then? Well, I think there's two big tasks. Uh, uh, on, the, on the change front, um, it probably falls into several categories. I think you need to change the worldview, the anti-Western worldview uh, that was 
so politically toxic with voters. I mean, I went on doorstep after doorstep after doorstep uh, where it would be raised with me Labour's attitude towards the Skripals in Russia, Labour's attitude towards terrorism, uh, Labour's attitude towards national security. There is a minimum threshold of uh, acceptability to the public that you've got to... Uh, you've got to really believe in the country that you're seeking to lead. And you've got to really uh, be serious about the defence of the realm. And that's a test that we failed in the last five years, very publicly uh, and openly. So that's got to change. The policy offer, uh, I think, has to change to be much more future-looking. We're in a new world now. Uh, you know, look at the labour market, all these jobs with Uber and Deliveroo and gig workers and things like that. Uh, there's a new agenda needed there. And too often, I think we've defined radicalism as rewinding changes that have happened in the last 30 or 40 years. So the test of your radicalism can't just be jumping up and down on a rewind button to try to recreate the balance between state and market that existed in 1970, something or other. Um, there's got to be much more future looking. You've got to be trusted with public money. That's a basic minimum. Um, and our trust levels, I'm part of the Shadow Treasury team, very conscious of this, our trust levels on the economy and public money and taxation and questions like that have been very low for, for years. And unless you meet that threshold, people are less likely to listen to your other policy ideas. And then finally, I'd say a cultural change about how we conduct ourselves. I mean, the Labour Party became a very sectarian and faction-ridden place to be in the last uh, few years before Keir Starmer took over. Um, and you saw what happened with uh, some MPs basically being hounded out of the Labour Party because of their treatment. Um, it was really appalling and all of that's got to change. And I think Keir Starmer, you know, uh, realises that. Um, so it's change on lots of different fronts all of which is uniting to say we've learned a lesson for the, five, the last five years. We're no longer that kind of Labour Party anymore. Um, we want to, to speak to you in a different way now. And then the second part of the challenge is your future offer. You know, and if I look at the big moments of victory, 1945, 1964, 1997, what have they got in common? They have these big future offers. They're not nostalgic offers, they are about tomorrow. They're not about fighting for a better yesterday. Uh, they're about consciously reaching beyond your base to people who are voting Conservative in the past. Um, and they're very much about who's got the best answer to the challenges facing the country now. It's really always about New Britain. You know, 1945 was about New Britain, 1964 was about New Britain, and 1997 too. So the individual policies might change, but the approach doesn't really change as much as we might think. It's all about the last five years, but Labour was obviously losing elections before then. Um, so it's not just about undoing Corbynism, is it? It's about also accepting that Labour in 2015 wasn't resonating with the country, that just going back to kind of Ed Miliband's soft left position won't be enough. That way defeat lies as well. Well, I voted for David Miliband uh, and... Uh, you know, I think you know, even now you can go on the doorstep and this happens 
uh, happened to me in one of the, the by-elections recently that we fought, and I was on the doorstep and somebody said to me, where it all went wrong for you lot was when you elected the wrong brother. People still say that. Um, and, you know, I think that was a really important inflection moment for the Labour Party, because what I think David Miliband would have done was renewed New Labour, and it did it did need renewing. And he'd have, he'd have done that. He wasn't, uh, it probably wasn't so much in the centre as Tony Blair. He was probably a bit more to the left, but he'd have tried to renew New Labour. And what happened instead with Ed's election was a retreat from that. And it's a, look, it's an easy thing to do to, to say to the Labour Party that uh, a lot of what's happened in government was really departure from your values and, you know, to, to feed into the very ready uh, acceptance that somehow it was all a bit grubby and um, that, uh, you know, it was all a bit of a betrayal. And so what we need to do is rewind from all that. And you can, you can have a warm comfort bath in the Labour Party uh, if you do that, but look where it ended up. It ended up with the first Tory majority in a generation. That journey obviously really starts with the, the handover from Tony Blair to Gordon Brown, and you worked with Ed Miliband on Pathways to the Future, or it had some sort of grand title like that, a kind of joint legacy securing <laughs> initiative. I don't know what you would call it. Um, did any of that work end up being sort of carried on by Gordon Brown or was that slightly to kind of make everyone feel a bit better behind the scenes? Look, I, I, when I look back at the Tony and Gordon thing, the differences, they seem very small now, given what's happened since. You know, Brownites, Blairites, Kinnikites, what does any of that mean in the face of Jeremy Corbyn running the Labour Party? I mean, it just seems... Those differences seem uh, irrelevant. What's that phrase somewhere else? The narcissism of small differences or, or, or whatever. Uh, and they were fantastic when they worked together. But some of the tensions, they look quite indulgent to me now because underlying them was an assumption, well, we can have these fights over quite small things and we'll win the next election. And the underlying assumption was he'd always win the next election. And I think if we thought then that we could lose four in a row, uh, you know, I would hope that it would have given pause for, you know, some of some of those really involved in those fights uh, back at the time. So I think the Blair-Brown divisions were much less in substance in political substance than uh, was written about at the time. Uh, I think they were tragic given what came after it. Um, but really the choice after Tony Blair was, do you do New, new Labour 2.0 or do you retreat from it? And ultimately the party chose to retreat from it. And we've had quite a lot of electoral verdicts on that by now. This is something that, I, I mean, obviously I used to work for the party. I have my own view on it. But it strikes me, now looking from the outside, as it did from the inside, that wherever you actually stood politically, it was obvious if you wanted to win an election where you had to be. So if you depart from that, you kind of have to logically accept that your likelihood of victory is less. In your view, do people 
like Ed Miliband and, and those people around the kind of to the left of Tony Blair, but to the right of Jeremy Corbyn, genuinely think that at some point they could win an election from that position? Or do they think it's far more important just to stand for what you believe and if you lose, so be it? I don't know if I want to speak for, for anybody else, but in the British system, it's pretty clear that if you want to win, if you want the Labour Party to win, you have to appeal to many people who have voted Conservative in recent elections. Most of these seats are Labour-Conservative battles. Even now, even after all the defeats we've had, we're a long, you know, if I go back to the black country, seats that we used to represent, we're a long way back in now. Some of them have got five-figure Tory majorities. But even then, we're in second place in most of them. So if you're ever going to get them back, uh, it's about appealing to people who voted Conservative at recent elections. And that basic, simple lesson seems quite obvious to me, um, but it, it doesn't seem to be universally uh, thought about like that. And what I think is a, a big mistake of the Labour Party is to think that it's just the timing that we've got wrong, you know, um, that if we put forward this programme and have one more heave at it, maybe with a different leader in a different suit. And, you know, it always seems to be a suit. We haven't had a, we haven't had a woman leader yet. Um, that somehow it will just be a matter of timing. And that the latest event, whatever it might be, uh, the, the COVID pandemic or, or Brexit or, or something, has changed things so that now the electorate are ready to bite on the programme that they rejected a couple of years ago and voted Tory instead. And I don't know how many times we have to try that before realising that it's not a question of timing. It's a question of the actual offer you're making, the, uh, the overall character of what you say. Do you look as though you're for the future or for the past? Things like this. Um, to me, those are more important than simply trying to tweak the same programme and hoping that this time people will buy what they rejected before. But there's the danger of COVID, isn't it, for, for Labour politics, is that it is a war-level event, and you can absolutely see how the temptation would be to go, well, this fundamentally changes everything. You know, everyone's now going to be more of a social democrat. They realise that society was fundamentally unequal, and this is going to drive people to the Labour Party. And actually, we don't have to go through a divisive civil war in order to get the public on side. COVID's undoubtedly exposed things that were wrong in society, wrong in the labour market. You look at social care workers earning, you know, very little money, doing a really tough job. Um, that's obviously something that's got to be addressed. You look at who we went out on the streets and clapped for on those Thursday nights and ask ourselves how much are they paid? Uh, you know, obviously the NHS workers, but others too, you know, Think about the people that stack the shelves in supermarkets or the delivery drivers. There's a real shortage of HGV drivers now for a number of reasons. Uh, and we've realised who we really depend on when the chips are down. So there are lessons from COVID that are really important. And everybody, as I say, times, times always change. Um, but I still think for Labour, the fundamentals of, uh, no matter how ambitious you are to address those, uh, those wrongs, and do something about them, and we should be ambitious, it's still incumbent upon you to be trusted with public money, 
to be trusted on taxation and spending, not to be wasteful, to be trusted on defence and national security and to keep people safe. And you can't wriggle out of those responsibilities because of a big event. That responsibility is always there. And only by meeting those tests do you get the chance to address the social injustices that you want to address. You've worked for a number of Labour leaders, firstly, Donald Dewar. So was that your first job in politics then, or had you, had you had another position? Yeah, yeah that was my first job. I, wow. I, was, I was straight out of university, and I'd applied for a job as a, a researcher for the Scottish Labour Party. I'd, I'd been a party member for a few years, and I didn't get the job as the researcher. Uh, but I'm, maybe I said something right in the interview or whatever, um, because uh, after that, I got a call from uh, a guy called Murray Elder, who's in the Lords now, and he said, look, Donald Dewar wants a new researcher, so uh, and you need to go and, and meet him. So I went to this place. I was a student in Edinburgh, and I'd just graduated, and uh, I went to this place, which at that time was called the North British Hotel. You'd get killed if you called something the North British Hotel <laughs> these days, but that's what it was called. And it was a railway hotel above Waverley Station. And although I'd been a student in the city for years, I'd never been in somewhere like the North British Hotel. I mean... Is that the Balmoral now, is it? That's it's big... the Balmoral now, yeah. Wow, yeah. Um, Beautiful hotel. So I went in there quite nervously and sat in this quite posh kind of area. And Donald Dewar was late. He was always late. And he came in <laughs> and he said, we'll have a pot of tea. So he orders this pot of tea. And... Uh, you know, he was a big gangly figure. I was quite intimidated by this guy that I'd just seen on TV. But I got the job and uh, I worked for him for the next four years. What was he like as a boss? He was, I mean, we were an odd mix. He was, he was very funny uh, in some ways, but he was also quite austere. He was, you know, his caricature would be one of these guys that, you know, didn't really approve of people taking time off at Christmas and things like that. Quite an austere uh, Scottish Presbyterian figure um, but we we somehow hit it off and, and got on well uh, you know an unlikely mix in some ways but um, but we did and his great ambition of course was to was to see the the Scottish Parliament uh, created he'd been through some of the battles in the Labour Party in the 1980s uh, so his big allies were people like Roy Hattersley. He was very close to uh, to Roy Hattersley. Um, and he finally, I don't know if he was a natural uh, Blair supporter. I'm not really sure he was, but it was through Blair's leadership and Blair's uh, uh, drive to win the 97 election that he was managed to realise the ambition of creating the Scottish Parliament. And of course... The great tragedy for Donald is he only lived for about two years after it was created, uh, before before dying at quite a quite a young age in in the year two thousand. The man you then went on to work for, John Smith, died young as well. Two really tragic deaths. Smith's obviously had a profound effect on Labour history. Um, his legacy is quite interesting, John Smith, because 
some men, I mean, as is every Labour politician, but some people will say, oh, you know, John Smith was a lot more left-wing than Tony Blair and he'd have won in 97 and we would have had a more left-wing Labour government. He might not have won with the same majority, but it probably won. Other people say, well, hang on a minute, John Smith was a moderniser. You know, the left have been perhaps too quick to claim his legacy. What's your view on, on where he stood politically, how much of a genuine moderniser he was, and, and would he have won in 1997? He stood for the leadership against... Uh... Brian Gould. Yeah. Um, and John Smith won very convincingly. I mean, it was sort of 90% to 10% or something like that. I mean, I'm, I don't know if I'm exactly right, but it was overwhelming. But there had been pressure on John during that election because some people were characterising him as the one more heave candidate, very much the establishment candidate, safety first and all of that. Um, and I think he was... And at that time, was, sorry, Pat, at that time, when you yeah. say the establishment candidate, what was the Labour establishment at the time? What was the Labour establishment? Well, he, you know, he had the overwhelming support. It's interesting how things change. He, had, he at that time, had the overwhelming support of uh, the trade union leaders. Um, Brian Gould did a wee bit better, actually, among the PLP. I think he got about 20% of the PLP, but even then, it was a sort of 80-20 split among the the PLP uh, and the members were overwhelmingly. So really each each part of the the whole thing was for for John. And he, I think he was a bit wary of that um, sort of one more heave uh, caricature. Uh, and uh, he went for this one member, one vote change, uh, which was, it, it doesn't, it, in some ways it doesn't, look fantastically radical now, but at the time it was a big move away from the block vote. And of course, people said this is on the way to breaking the link between the unions and the Labour Party. And John never wanted to do that, but that's how the opponents of the change uh, described it. And he found himself in this enormous fight with the biggest unions at the time, who were the TNG, the, the precursor of Unite, uh, and, uh, and the GMB, and you know, he was a big personal friend of John Edmonds, who was the GMB leader at the time. He found it very uncomfortable being in a fight against those guys. But once he was in it, he wanted to win it. And I got hired in, the, I think, about the May of that year and th thrown into this to try and to try and get this change through the party conference. And all summer, it looked like we would lose. Uh, but it's also where we met some of the younger leaders who were coming through, like Alan Johnson, who supported the change, uh, the young postal workers leader at the time. Uh, and uh, of course it culminated in that, in that conference with that amazing speech from John Prescott, which those of us who were there will never forget. Um, and there were even union delegations the MSF delegation, this is deep in Labour Party nerdly history, they met on the lunchtime of the day and only decided by about two votes to back the change. So we were down to this sort of small percentages. You know, this union's worth two or three percent of the vote. They could make a big difference. I remember that, you know, the MSF thing was a big, a big thing at the time. And he managed to get it through. He, I think more broadly, apart from one member, one vote, he knew that there was a reassurance job needed for Labour. 
the point is, it's not enough just to say it's time for change. We always say it's time for change if we're in opposition. Um, but you have to, and John actually said this to me at one point, you have to address the reasons why people aren't voting for you as well. So he knew he knew that had to be done. Uh, and that is something, that's something Tony Blair was very clear about when he took over. So there were things that, even if people were getting fed up with the Tories, and there was a lot of sleaze around at the time, the John Major government, uh, they still needed to know, could we trust this, this other party? Could we trust Labour? And the big things they probably needed reassurance on were still defence national security, because we'd gone through the period of unilateralism, tax and spend, where Tony and Gordon worked really well together to try and, to try and do that, and trade union power. And the public needed reassurance on those three things. Who was really running the show? Could you be trusted with uh, public money? And could you be trusted with defence? And then there were individual policy areas that had to be gone through as well. So it, was, uh, it, it, it wasn't enough just to rely on the unpopularity of a long-serving Conservative government. You had to do the hard yards to prove that you could be trusted yourself. Just a side note on what, one member, one vote. Obviously, it applied to certain things, not to the leadership, but there's still an electoral college to choose the Labour leader and to let Miliband change the rules. So, in a way, wasn't Ed Miliband the heir to John Smith in the way that he uh, changed the way that, that Labour chose its leader? I was one of the few people not to celebrate uh, that change. I'm not saying I predicted that it would result in Corbyn, but it wasn't really one member, one vote. It was a different kind of electoral college. And I remember being phoned by somebody who was working on it. He said, well, you, you know, you've been, you've been around a bit, uh, so I want to test this. This is the way this thing is heading. I want to test this on you. The proposal is we get rid of the MPs section. Um, we keep the union section, as it is, and we create this new section where supporters can join for three pounds. And I said, but that's not one member, one vote. You either just make this party members or all you're doing is creating a new kind of electoral college with three, three different bits in it. And what you're actually doing, because there's always been a bit of a tension between the MPs having a third of the vote and the unions having a third of the vote. And it, it was, you know, this thing where an MP's vote was worth however many you know, 2,000 party member votes or whatever it was. Um, and I said, uh, why don't you just go for one member, one vote if you're going to do this? And I was told, well, that's not deliverable. The unions won't wear it. And so we ended up with this different kind of electoral college, which we, uh, which we, now, which we now have. Um, so I, I don't think that what was done at that time was the logical extension of Smith's change. If there was a logical extension of Smith's change, it would have been, if you didn't want this MP's weighted vote thing, the thing to do was just give party members the power to elect a leader. You said the 1993 conference around one member, one vote was the most stressful. <laughs> I, mean, I can understand why it was so stressful, but what are your, what are your memories of perhaps some of the flashpoints and, and moments of that time? Well, you know, later, obviously, under Tony Blair, we had the Clause 4 change announced. That's like the following year or a year and a half later, the Wembley Conference, yeah, 1995. That's right. And um, 
again, that one there seems to be a pattern to these things where at first it looks like you're going to lose. Yeah. And there was a big reaction to it. And there was, you know, the NEC weren't happy and so on. And where the tide turned on that, actually, it takes us back to Scotland. Where the tide really turned on it was uh, the Scottish Labour Party had uh, the first, that was the first big moment where they would, they would vote on this. And there was a big um, standoff, a big sort of uh, set-piece debate on this. Uh, and it really showed the best of the Scottish Labour Party at the time. I think it was in Inverness. Um, and, you know, I, I, they voted to support the change in principle. And after that, things got a lot easier. So sometimes you have this uh, description of the Scottish Labour Party that they were never up for modernisation. It was always very traditional that Blairism's rip never ran in the Scottish Labour Party and all of that. That instance would show that not to be true. The Scottish Labour Party supported the change in Clause 4 uh, at a kind of formal level before the National Labour Party did. But that was a big tension in terms of internal reform. What I would say is after we got into government, and this is a natural thing, attention goes away from these things because they're about party management and the business of governing takes over. So the modernisation of the Labour Party took a back seat during our time in government. And I think that's to be regretted because, uh, you know, if you, if, you, if you leave that alone for too long, uh, then you can end up, you know, being a bit behind the curve. So what should you what do? We would, well, uh, I think there were, there were further things we could have done on policy, um, you know, the members' involvement in the, in the, in the journey of the government. And I think maybe we didn't pay enough attention to that. And over time, you get this uh, slight sense of dissonance between the party and the government. And it's natural. If you're a prime minister, you know, my goodness, there's a lot going on every day. You know, and uh, it's one of the big skills in politics is to separate the urgent from the important. Mm. And the urgent can take over your day all day long, but it's not always the most important. And uh, that that is natural. Um, and just the business of government takes over. Oh, but come on, we had the National Policy Forum. <laughs> we did. <laughs> we did. <laughs> you still might. I don't know. Does it still exist? I don't. I've not been for many years. I was the chair of it for a while, but I've not really been involved in in that particular forum for for some time. Because that was a way, wasn't it, of kind of getting th- taking the sting out of conference a bit and saying, "Well, we'll discuss it in a proper yeah, way." Yeah, it was. It was, but it, it it got into this thing um, where we tread water for a few years, and then there'd be this great showdown at Warwick once a Parliament with the unions. So it sort of became a little conference of its own, except every four years rather than every year. I'm not sure it. I'm not sure that was the ideal in the minds of the creators, but they were, that's where we ended up. Just on Scottish Labour and on a non-political point, um, I occasionally get the sleeper train to Glasgow or Edinburgh and back. And I remember someone telling me, oh, back in the day, in the Scottish Labour heyday, the club car was basically full of like, Donald Dewar, maybe not Donald Dewar, because as you say, he's Presbyterian and quite a stare, but uh, 
John Smith and Robin Cook and they'd all just drink through the night and then get off at Glasgow Central at like seven in the morning. And I just thought, oh my God, they must have been, it's almost like rock stars or something. Were you ever on any of those late nights? Yeah, yeah, I was on it a few times. Um, you're right about Donald, he wasn't a drinker, so he wouldn't have, you know, he might have been there for an hour, but it would have been with a glass of Coke or something. Um, but there were a few drinkers on that train, yeah. Um, and... You know, if you weren't careful, you'd look out the window and you'd be impressed. And so uh, I don't, I don't know if people, if MPs still, still travel that way uh, up and down Scotland. But it could be uh, back in the day. I think, I think the situation you're describing is pretty accurate. Yeah. But it must be so exciting when you're part of something, and it is perhaps like being part of a successful football team or a band. Um, when you're part of something like New Labour or Scottish Labour when it's doing well and there's a whole load of you and you're you're changing the world for the better or you feel like you're doing good work and you're socialising together and stuff like that. There must be something really personally enriching about it. It was really exciting to be to be part of a Labour government that was doing things. Uh, you know, some of the changes we made, uh, I think, were, uh, were really good. Um, and just the simple ability to put what you want into practice instead of just talk about it. Uh, what I talked to Tessa Jowell uh, about this a few years ago and, you know, she would say to me, weren't we lucky? Weren't we lucky to be part of a Labour Party that could win three elections in a row, to be part of a movement that was really in step with where the country was? And going back to what we were saying a little while ago about Blair Brown, I think what we didn't realise at the time was that you can lose that very quickly and it's very hard to regain. And we didn't appreciate, and you know, I hope it's not a unique moment. I don't believe it's necessarily a unique moment, but we didn't, we didn't appreciate how rare an opportunity that was at the time, an accident of um, timing, you know, politics. Well, I don't mean... An accident of timing for those of us who were involved in it. I don't mean it was an accident of timing in creating it because it was a, it was a lot of hard work went in to create it. But if you were a certain age, you got to work at, at that. I remember a discussion with uh, Jim Innes, who was an old friend who'd been involved in the nineteen eighty three election, and I said to him once, "Do you feel, you know, that um, you were just unlucky in the timing because nineteen eighty three we obviously got hammered." Um, and he, he said no he said, uh, he said we made the wrong choices so it's partly about age and where you get to work but it's partly about the choices as well uh, Jim died a couple of years ago an absolutely great man uh, but he, he, he was quite self-critical not of himself but of what the Labour Party was doing in the early 1980s and how it ended up with uh, the results that it had you worked for Tony Blair. You served in Gordon Brown's government, um, you and Peter Mandelson, running running the department for, I think, what was it, Business and Industrial Strategy, Biz, or whatever it was called back then, before it got rebranded again after it was the DTI. Um, Changed the name about five times. It keeps the, the, the sign makers on Victoria yeah. Street. <laughs> must be so grateful for government contracts. Um, <laughs> what was your relationship with Gordon like? And what is it like? Um, you know, it was... In government, it was it was fine. 
Look, I was a lot closer to Tony. I'd worked more closely with Tony. I had been with him in opposition. I'd been part of his policy unit. I'd been his political secretary. Um, I sort of had an affinity with what he was trying to do politically, partly for the reasons we were discussing earlier. And I, I, I think I understood his particular appeal to the working class. Uh, and maybe we'll come on to talk about some of that in terms of some of the policies that were uh, pursued. Uh, with Gordon, you know, I'm grateful to Gordon. He, he appointed me as a minister in, uh, in the Department of Business. He made me a privy councillor. Um, and, you know, we worked perfectly well together. Uh, and my great regret is that division between the two, because when they worked together, they were completely unstoppable. What does, I mean, I, I vaguely know what being on the Privy Council involves, but how formal is it? Well, the, I think we're, we, we swear some oath of allegiance or oath of secrecy. About, yeah, that's right. yeah, you, yeah, this is confidential. So, I mean, you, um, there's, a, there's a slightly quaint ceremony at the palace, uh, which is a great honour, and you get to meet the Queen. And my kids always say to me, have you ever met the Queen? And I say, yes, I met the Queen when I was appointed as Privy Councillor. Um, and then I went back once or twice because the formal approval of laws takes place at the Privy Council. So there's, you need a quorum of four or five, I think, and you get invited along and, and somebody reads out the laws and, and the Queen formally approves them. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a great honour and uh, I'm very grateful to, to Gordon Brown for nominating me for it back in the day. And do you stay since, I mean, since I left government, I've nothing to do with it. You know. <laughs> do, you, um, do you stay on it for the period of time that you're in government or are you a privy councillor? You're on it for life. It gives you this title, right honourable, which you have for life, should you want to use it. And, and would you only get invited to that sort of royal assent bit if you're in the party of government? Or could yeah, now they yeah. say, Pat McFadden, you're on the privy no, council, the government will lie. We wouldn't do that. That's for ministers of, of the day. So I've had... No involvement with it at all since leaving government. And then do you get like email updates? Is it like an alumni thing? You get they email you uh, to make sure they've got your contact. They want to know where you are. Oh, so if, if or when the Queen hands over to either Charles or William, would you then be, would you then have to go to a ceremony? Well, they certainly want to make sure where you are. So they, they keep, they keep, uh, they keep up to date with that. Um, for that reason, I'm not quite sure what happens in that event, and let's hope it doesn't happen for a long time. Um, but they do, they do make sure they've got your address and all of that. In all the years of doing this podcast, I've never really spoken about, I've never asked anyone about what it's like to be on the Privy Council until now. Well, there's probably a lot more experienced people on it, you know, you could ask than me, but that's my knowledge of it. So, you're Tony Blair's political secretary. What does the political secretary do? Political secretary is this sort of hinge between number 10 and the governing party of the day. So my job was keeping in touch with the party headquarters, keeping in touch with the whips, keeping in touch with the PLP, uh, quite a lot of work with the trade unions, all the different bits of the Labour Party attending NEC meetings, um, all the different bits of the Labour Party. Uh, it's not a post that every prime minister has, it's paid by, you don't get paid by the taxpayer, you get paid by the whoever the governing party of the day is. Um, 
but we always had one as you know we found it a useful point of liaison somebody it's good to have somebody in number 10 who is clearly the kind of party contact and that's what the political secretary is do you think you were drawn to working for leaders is it like a sort of character type obviously you work for donald joe work for john smith you work for tony blair is that I don't know if you've ever thought about your own career in that way, but there was no there was no plan and one just led to another. I mean, I'd been working for Donald Dewar for a few years, and uh, you know, John Smith's office asked me to go and work for them. And Smith and Dewar were very close. So I don't know if they'd spoken or, you know, about building up John's office. Um I went in there ostensibly to write, help write speeches first, but I got thrown into this one member, one vote thing, as I, as I said. And then when John Smith died, the assumption was uh, Tony Blair would have all his own team, and he largely did. And I nearly left at that point to go and work for the BBC. Uh, I had an interview and an offer from the BBC. Um, but What to do? It was... It was, again, writing speeches for John Burt, who was the director general at the time. Um, and he, he, was, he was appointing people to his office. Uh, and I, I told, I went to see Tony Blair and I said, look, I've got this offer from the BBC. And, you know, I just wanted to talk it over with him before making a decision. But he asked me to stay on. Um, so really, uh, there were only two people, I think, from... John Smith's office, who were kept on by Tony Blair, me and uh, Hilary Kaufman, who was a great doyen of Labour press operations, and she was kept on to work with Alastair Campbell. Uh, the rest of it was Blair's, if you like, original team uh, from before he'd become leader. Um, and we've, we've, you know, we've stayed pretty close friends, that group, over the years. Um, and we see one another every year for Christmas dinner. Uh, which is very nice. They're all a lot older now, but if you get forged in a very intense political experience like that, I think it stays with you for the rest of your life. So do you go to a restaurant for Christmas dinner or do you go to someone's house? Does Tony have all around at Connaught Square? Uh, usually go to some... We've done it in both. Uh, we usually go to someone's house. It's very nice uh, and it's a good catch-up and um, it's nice to see everybody. And it's it's all cemented by that bond that we had not just in number 10 but in the period running up to it because to to win in 97 was obviously the biggest thing and it hadn't happened for Labour for a very long time. And thinking about Tony Blair as a leader compared to Donald Duran and John Smith obviously three distinct personalities. Tony Blair is the sort of more obviously successful one I mean did he have character traits and assets that that other politicians didn't have? I think he had some very distinct traits uh, which were very important leadership qualities. The first one that I noticed right away was he put the public first. Now, you might say, is that, that should be obvious. That's what any leader should do. But it isn't always what happens. So the old argument that you knew a particular change in policy was the right thing to do, you couldn't do it because the party wouldn't wear it. That would upset some part of the Labour Party. Tony Blair had no time for that. He wanted to walk through whatever wall was in front of him to get us into a winning position. 
And if changing that policy meant upsetting part of the Labour Party, then so be it. But what he didn't want to do was to wake up the day after an election saying, if only I'd changed that, if only I'd faced up to that, I might not have lost. I don't think he could have lived with himself if he'd ended up like that. So he was determined to do that, and I was really, really struck by that uh, from the get-go. And people make the mistake of thinking New Labour was you know, just a slick PR operation. Uh, it was a slick PR operation, but it was much more than that. He went through every single area of policy with that in mind. So what is it about this area of policy? What do we need to change? So public first was a, a big uh, leadership trait. The second thing was uh, temperament. Uh, you know, a lot happens in any given day when you're a political leader and you don't get to decide to have a quiet day because events won't let you. So if you're feeling a bit low energy or, you know, you're just not really up for it that day, it doesn't matter. Events will still happen. You still have to deal with them. Anything from quarrels between your colleagues, policy decisions, something external that you're just not expecting, uh, in all the years I worked with Tony Blair, I never saw him get phased by these things. I never saw him lose his temper. He had a, an absolutely outstanding temperament for for leadership, and I think that really helped him cope with uh, with all of that. And I think this wasn't necessarily always there at the beginning, but the third thing that really emerged over time was this idea of empowering people who didn't have money uh, as a theme in what we did in government. So if we take education as an example, if, if people want to buy a private education and need being privately educated, they can pay to do so. But obviously that option is only available for a few percent of the population. Other people can move house and that's the kind of dirty little secret of uh, a lot of what goes on in education is selection by house price. People can move house into a nice area uh, and they can probably be guaranteed a pretty good school. But Blair asked himself the question, what do we do for people who can't go private and can't move house? They can't buy their way out of their situation if they've got a failing school. And that meant facing up to the fact that sometimes there were vested interests in the public sector too uh, that didn't really want to hear about the failing school and didn't really want to make big enough changes to it. And that's why he brought in policies like city academies to address educational failure. He took the same approach to the NHS where people were waiting up to two years for hip replacements and knee replacements and things like that. So what does it take to get those waiting lists down Hospital choice, if the waiting list at hospital A is too, too big, can I go to hospital B? This was radical at the time. Uh, crime, who suffers most from crime? Can we have neighbourhood policing teams? Because it's often the most working class areas that are suffering the most from antisocial behaviour and, you know, the type of crime that really degrades the quality of life. You know, what freedom is there for people if they don't feel they're safe in their own home and in their own streets. So in a number of areas, Sure Start was another one. How can we give children the best start in life from whatever background they're from? 
And in many, many years, he wanted to empower people who didn't have money and empowering people with the same kind of power and choice as people who've got money and who can buy these things. That's one of the most radical things you can do. A lot of those reforms were seen by people on the left as introducing market forces into uh, the public sector. You know, I remember people saying, oh, these academies are going to be the McDonald's Academy and the Coca-Cola Academy, with all these fears about multinationals running our education system, uh, Reg Vardy and all that sort of stuff I remember a lot of the fuss about. Um, but since Blair, Labour's relationship with the working class has eroded at a rate that must they must petrify you. I mean, thinking about your seat, Wolverhampton Southeast, the change from the twenty nine, the twenty seventeen to the twenty nineteen election, going from a majority of around eight and a half thousand to just over a thousand. I mean, do you feel that seats like Wolverhampton Southeast are almost like the last bricks in the red wall? Well, you're right about the numbers, and um, don't forget in the twenty seventeen election. There were 120 or 130 seats where there was a swing from Labour to the Tories, even in a general election where overall there was a swing from the Tories to Labour. So there was a working class problem that was manifest at that election too. And it's been happening for some time. And some of the things that I've just described to you in policy terms about uh, the passion for educational uh, achievement, regardless of background, um, the empowerment of people uh, in other areas of public service, uh, the emphasis on uh, public safety and uh, people's security in their homes and their neighbourhoods, uh, the best start in life and so on. We haven't really talked about those things much in recent years. Um, now, the actual way that you might do it might change over time. I'm not saying you're wedded to exactly the same uh, policy formats, but that idea of we know you want to get on in life, we know you're ambitious for yourself and your family, we know you don't want to be taxed to the hilt, uh, that you want to trust your government with, uh, uh, with public money, uh, we know that you want good things for you and your family, you're ambitious. You know, I'm not sure we've talked much about that in, uh, in recent years or had enough to say to those millions of voters. And when we were winning, we were very clear that we were passionate about uh, doing well for the poorest in society. And I'm really proud of our record, for example, in reducing child poverty when we were in government. But we also wanted to have a broad enough coalition that uh, that's not all you were concerned with. You were, you were concerned with uh, the broad mass of people, many of whom were in quite decent jobs as well. Uh, and that's... That is the winning coalition. Uh, and if you can put that together, you can get into a good place where you combine a strong economy with the social justice you've always believed in. Uh, and that's, I think, although a lot changes, I'm not sure that fundamental has really changed about the task required if Labour wants to build a majority. The, the Corbyn logic seems to be that um, the working classes want socialism. And that's the way to appeal to working class people is to be more and more left wing. But the results don't seem to suggest that. Well, they were offered uh, the manifesto of the hard left dreams in 2019. They had the leader they wanted. They had the programme they wanted. They even had the timing they wanted, 
Corbyn actually supported the election that Boris Johnson wanted. Yes, I'll support your get Brexit done election. I, mean, I didn't support it, but he supported it um, and said it had to happen. And the result was Labour's worst result since 1935. We lost uh, 60 seats. We got absolutely hammered. Uh, so that proposal has been tried and tested and proven to have failed. And thinking of seats like yours, where you're a satellite town around a big place like Birmingham, what makes the politics of those places different to, to those big urban centres? It's a, it's a really good, interesting question. Um, the economy of a lot of smaller cities and towns has changed so much over the past few decades. And, you know, if I think about Wolverhampton, where I represent, uh, the black country really prides itself on its uh, incredible manufacturing history. And it has that in common with many other parts of the country. Uh, but a lot of those big, really big workplaces, I mean, there was a workplace in my constituency called GKN Sankey's that employed 7,000 people on one site. Uh, but it closed decades ago. We had a steelworks that employed three or 4,000. That also closed you know, the end of the 1970s, beginning in the 1980s. Um, and that sense of loss has been deeply embedded in, uh, in a lot of small towns and small cities rather than bigger towns uh, for many years. So the task for politics is how do you create uh, an optimism about the future? And you've got to respect the past, but there's no returning to it. And so I think it's about new dreams and ambitions for the future. Um, it's about changing your expectation of what you want from the education system, because you have to equip people for the jobs of tomorrow, uh, not just today. And if I had an observation about Boris Johnson's levelling up agenda, it's that I think it's quite easy to put money into infrastructure projects and say there's this derelict old building that needs fixed up. And that's good. I'm all for that. Um, and, you, you know, you've got these pots of money, which, you know, we can be a bit sceptical about how it's distributed, but you've got these pots of money going around. But if you really want to address life chances and opportunities for people, infrastructure on its own isn't enough. It has to be about people. And that takes me back to... Things like Sure Start and giving kids the best chance in life. When I visit local nursery schools, very often people will say, you know, this is, this is an incredibly important couple of years for young children's lives. Uh, the skills they have, the school results they get, uh, you know, all of that seems to me, if you can have a, if you're really serious about levelling up, it's got to be about people, not just bricks and mortar. And that's the kind of inequality strategy that I would like to see the Labour Party have because it's by empowering people and equipping them for the future that's coming very, very fast, the future that's already here in many ways, that you'll, um, that you'll really address regional uh, inequality. That's what I think we've got to do. Just thinking about your own seat then, and, and, and you obviously it's a pretty thin majority now, having always been pretty safe. I mean, what's your feeling about what happens at the next election whenever it comes? You look at the last election result, you look at places like Hartlepool. Obviously, Labour's changed its leader, but it, obviously, as Hartlepool proves, that's not necessarily enough. I mean, do you feel nervous about the next election? 
Well, I know we've got an awful lot to to do. Um, you can argue that even though Labour got the worst results since 1935 and 2019, there is an argument that its vote was, its seat count rather, was, uh, it could have been worse if the Brexit party hadn't stood because uh, they got a few thousand votes here and there in some seats and Labour could have lost even more seats in 2019. So I think there's a huge amount to do. And it takes me back to, look, if we don't change, then yes, I will be nervous. You know, if we if we adopt the argument that, uh, well, you know, like we were talking earlier, it was just a matter of timing. We've got pretty much the same offer and approach, but we've got this different leader. That's not going to be enough. Um, but if we have the courage to face up to all the reasons why people really weren't voting for us in recent years, and we address those deep trust issues on national security, worldview, tax and spend, and our offer to people, which has to combine both the discipline of choices. You can't just say yes to everybody. Saying yes to everybody isn't radical. It's just posing. You know, uh, so let's not do that. Have some discipline about priorities and make it really focused on the future. You know, I don't think we're fated to lose. I don't think there's some grand demographic, clever reason why, you know, there's so many people in this kind of job and that kind of job. Some of these arguments that are put forward, you know, Eric Hobsbawm wrote the Forward March on Labour halted decades ago, suggesting that demographic changes and the decline of big industry and so on would, would mean Labour possibly couldn't win. And Tony Blair and New Labour completely blew that out of the water by forming a new electoral coalition. Uh, so you're, we're not fated to lose, but it is about really facing up to why you have lost and having the courage to make the changes uh, rather than thinking it's just a matter of timing and, you know, maybe we'll get it right next time. That's not enough. What about your role in, in, the, in Keir Starmer's shadow team then? Because you're one of the most effective communicators the Labour Party's got. Very powerful communicator, very clear thinker. Why aren't you more prominent? I can't answer that. The manager picks the team. We started this discussion talking about football and Celtic. The manager picks the team and that's completely up to him. Um, to be honest, I was a bit... I wasn't really expecting a call from his office at all uh, back in April last year when he got uh, elected. Uh, and they sort of said, look, you're an experienced... Uh, head. Um, we want you to help out on the Shadow Treasury team. And I thought, look, I've been very critical of the Labour Party leadership for the last period. Um, I want a Labour Party that's better than we've offered in recent years. If Keir says he's going to try and put that together, then I've got a duty to help out for a while. So uh, I went back on. But as I say, who does what job there's not much you control as a leader in opposition. That's the one thing you do control, so that's up to him. <laughs> but the Labour Party believes in meritocracy. You know, there's... Uh, I mean, Labour obviously has some very talented politicians in, in, in leading roles, and um, refreshing that front bench is a, is a crucial way of getting the public back on side, um, maybe not immediately, um, but having some talented performers. I mean, I know we started off with a comparison with John Reid, um, but obviously he was someone who got... You know, it was just... <laughs> 
so many different cabinet positions because he was great on Newsnight. And I feel like Labour's not had someone like him or you for a while that can just deal with the Tories and deal with the SNP and deal with Labour politics. And, and really, I think you're the sort of person that people just immediately listen to. Well, I don't know. That's very kind. But uh, John Reid, we used to call him Blair's Farman because he was sort of sent for when whenever a department was in crisis. Um, I don't know if Keir's got a farming. Um, but, uh, you know, that's kind. But as I say, there's not much point in politics in talking about your own prospects and what jobs you should do. We are in a business where, uh, and I think this is right, we used to have shadow cabinet elections, remember? Uh, yeah. I think it's right that the leader gets to appoint their own, uh, their own team. That's what Keir does. He's asked me to do this. I'm happy to do it. Pat, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Well, there you go, Pat McFadden. Apologies, by the way. And, and this goes not just for this episode, but other ones. I'm still recording these ones at home over Zoom. So if you... I think at various points during that interview, someone knocked at the door. My neighbours are getting their flat renovated. So they may have been drilling and hammering. I do try and mute the microphone whenever some noise happens. I think at Pat's end, there was a barking dog and a, a seagull or something. So I know that's happened in other interviews. So apologies if that um, ruins the audio experience, or maybe it just makes it more immersive. You know, it's got a soundscape now. Um, but what a fantastic guest Pat was. And you do think, you don't hear. Labour people talk like this. Those sorts of voices, those really clear, direct communicators. I mean, they're rare in politics, to be fair. Um, but there was a period where voices like Pat's uh, were far more prominent and it coincided with Labour being more successful. But uh, he's just got such a great way of thinking and talking about politics. That real gift of um, being able to distill things really uh, the economy of his analysis is so impressive and uh, uh, it's just a small thing as well but a great voice and I think sometimes obviously <laughs> voices are something I'm kind of uh, not obsessed by but very uh, aware of and uh, he's just got such a great voice and you think if he was on the radio I don't tell him more your ears prick up when someone like Pat McFadden talks and that could only be a good thing uh, for Labour, um, but a fantastic guest, very modest about his own uh, uh, role in things, um, but the benefit of that, you know, having worked for Dewar and Smith and Blair, just such a good, uh, what a start to political life, uh, remarkable. Um, so I've got some, I, I mean, I, uh, great guests as always lined up. I've waffled on for more than long enough. Um, thank you so much for downloading. Do email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Leave a review on iTunes or Acast or wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll see you next time. Ta-ra.